Welcome to the Alabama Literacy Networks podcast, which is designed to share information and best practices for literacy in the state of Alabama. We represent various groups working on literacy in the state. We hope to bring a wide variety of resources together to help school leaders, teachers, and parents so that all children read at high levels. We believe that literacy is a fundamental right tied to so many positive outcomes that we want for the citizens of Alabama. This podcast was brought to you by Bright Spot Ed LLC, an educational consulting company based in Alabama, providing consulting, professional learning, evaluation services, and resources. Our goal is to highlight the good and replicate it across education. Check us out at brightspoted.com. I'm your host, Shelley Bell-Smith. Today, we will be talking to Mrs. Lakeisha Young, who is co-founder and CEO of the Oakland Reach, creating and leading multiple major campaigns. In 2019, the Oakland Reach had its first policy win, the Opportunity Ticket, which gives the most vulnerable students higher preference for enrolling in quality schools. Lakeisha then doubled down on Reach's commitment to opportunity by launching Literacy for All, a campaign to increase the literacy of the whole family. This work laid the groundwork and parent power for the virtual family hub. Lakeisha is a respected national voice on parent advocacy, featured on CNN, KQED, Univision, and more, and regularly consults with other cities. Welcome, Lakeisha Young. Thank you for being here today. Hey, Shelly. Thank you for having me. Well, we're so excited for you to be here. Let's start by you telling our listeners how you became involved in this work of improving education. I think so much of this is really connected to my personal story. My family is from Jim Crow, South Mississippi. My mom was born and raised in Edwards, Mississippi, which is a town that had like a house every few miles. And my grandmother only made it to the ninth grade before she became a mom. And they migrated. And so her aspirations were really that my mom and my aunts and uncles would graduate from high school. They migrated to San Francisco in 1964 when my mom was 10. And so my mom did graduate from high school. And her dreams for me were bigger, which I, to this day, thank her for. Her dreams were for me to go to college. And I was able to go to college. But I realized just through those educational experiences, just the doors that open up for you. For my first, like maybe seven or eight years um, living in the housing projects of San Francisco. And I had a, you know, a good childhood and, and, a, and a great family. And education just really showed me that I could kind of map out the life that I wanted, that there was just no limits to what I could do with a great education. So I've always been in education as part of my career because I wanted to make sure that kids who look like me and or come from the communities that I come from have similar opportunities. I think what really shifted things for me significantly, which you could probably relate to, is just becoming a mom. Becoming a mom and feeling like because I had graduated from college and and all these other things that I had a certain kind of ownership over my child's education. I could really steer her in the ways that I wanted to. And it was when we were trying to transition her from preschool to um, kindergarten. And I also had a two-year-old son at the time. So, you know, the expenses of preschool are pretty major. So we were trying to get her into a really good district school. Our district has open enrollment, so you don't have to live in the same neighborhood as the school that you attend, but there are kind of enrollment preferences. With those enrollment preferences in play, So my neighborhood school was 
considered at the time, this was back when No Child Left Behind. So any schools that were failing over a certain amount of time got put into something called program improvement. And they had then four years to get better unless they closed. My neighborhood school at the time was in program improvement year, going into year three. And so I was like, whoa, it's a huge possibility that my daughter's going to get into kindergarten. And then by the time she's in second grade, her school is going to close. And I don't I don't know if anybody's trying to get their kid into a school in second grade, but that is just not the year that she wanted to be trying to do that. And I was used to stability. I was used to stability when I was going to school and I wanted to pass that stability down to my own children. So that just wasn't a lick. And so that process of, um, of their dad and I trying to go to open houses and fill out schools and, and then, you know, we completed the open enrollment application and when March came around, we got placed in our neighborhood school. We didn't get any of the schools that we applied for. We appealed, we appealed. And then that May found out that she was getting placed back into that school, but at a higher grade level, given her grades from the previous school. What saved us was that we had applied to a charter school called North Oakland Community Charter School. It was called Knox. And we really liked it because it was a small school. Families had started that school, like more privileged, actually, families had started that school. It was on lottery, too, though. And she just happened. There were 75 applications for nine slots. And she happened to be pulled number seven. And I remember just like dancing in hallelujah, because once she got pulled, then it was almost like my son definitely had a spot because siblings had first preference. So I was like, this has been hell, but I won't have to go through this, you know, hopefully again um, for a while. And so it was really that that was sort of such an eye opener for me that this access to a quality education thing is, is not an easy thing. And this is my firstborn child and the world is going to be opened up to her and I've got to do something about this. So I think the combination of being in education and leading work in education, but also being a mother just really fueled me to be thinking about how can I spend all day, every day, focused on the thing that that saved my life and, and created a huge pathway for me, make sure that I make sure my babies and other babies are on track. And then I just love the work of, of education. So that that just was like a perfect triage to what led into Oakland Reach because Oakland Reach is all about empowering parents. And so many of those parents are trying to have Lakeishas, right? Lakeishas who go to college. For, for almost all of our parents, the children that they are really supporting and demanding a better education for are going to be the first kids to go to college ever in, in these families. So our families are working hard to disrupt intergenerational poverty. You know, as a first generation college student myself, I get it. And so that's what we want for everyone, whether it's the first person in the family or the 15th, but especially mm-hmm. for the- who it is disrupting that generational cycle. For those of our listeners who don't know about the Oakland community, what can you tell us about who lives there? And we've already alluded to what Oakland Reach hopes to accomplish, but specifically why it's so important to this community. Yeah, so, you know, Oakland, California, you know, as it's like what I think it's 78 square miles, but this city has make, made a splash on this country for decades. So as you guys, for most people know, like this is home of the Black Panthers um, that became a huge national and global movement. At the time, you know, I think Oakland, very similar to other urban cities, has seen a lot of shifts and changes in the in the last, you know, f- 
couple of decades, right? And, and what I mean by that is Oakland as a city used to have a large African-American population. Now, like I think 25 or 26% of Oaklanders are African-American. They have a much larger Latino population, especially school age kids, something like 40 something percent. And then I think we have probably another 13 to 20% of like Asian and, 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 and white families. Like Oakland is diverse, but I, I would say like focusing specifically on our school district, that too has been an interesting kind of tumultuous journey. I think we've had about 21 superintendents over the past 50 years. If our current superintendent sees out her full contract, I think she'll be the longest standing superintendent maybe ever. And I think what I, what's important about that is all of that, you know, I think the average tenure was two years for a, a superintendent. Um, and, and people asking why is that the case? I think urban cities as a whole are, are just tough and challenging. But I think Oakland is unique. So, you know, this is like the, the birthing ground of social justice. And the way that plays out in this city is just, it can be quite interesting how it plays out and to who it plays out for. And so I think that Oakland is considered a liberal and progressive city. And the ways that that plays out, who that plays out for is very interesting. So when you start to apply those ideals and values to Oakland, you have just a really tense um, environment, especially between like the district and the teachers union here in Oakland. And, you know, obviously Oakland has been victim to redlining, just like other communities and what that has meant for the quality of property and schools and things of that nature. So right now, Oakland has about, I think the school district has about 32 to 38,000 students. So not a ton, you know, it's a smaller district. And we also have like maybe like 13,000 students in like charter schools. So charter schools, I think, um, and that's what's created a lot of political fight in, in here in Oakland is that over the past like 20 plus years, the charter schools have grown in Oakland. And, and then, you know, we have a lot of families sort of choosing those as well. Yet still a majority of students attend our district schools. So that is a little bit about Oakland that I can think of off the top of my head, just in terms of like just demographics as well as just like how it plays out demographics of education. I first started following Oakland Reach when the pandemic hit and Oakland Reach stepped in to fill a void to help families. Why was this needed and what have the results been? You know, everybody was like in that moment, like everybody was in that moment where I remember here in Oakland, March 13, 2020 was like the last day of school until actually just recently. And, you know, we let our parents know what was going on because, you know, they do robocalls and things of that nature. And by that next week, we were really like calling parents, just really surveying them, checking in, seeing where we were going to need to support. And what ended up happening was like our first response ended up being a relief fund. And we raised a ton of money to provide resources and funds to, to parents. But while that was also happening, what we were hearing from our families was like they had lost connection with their teacher. They didn't have the infrastructure and things in their homes to support some sort of rapid or just quick pivot to, to distance learning. But the other thing that I think is key is we were in an education crisis before we were in a health crisis. And so you're sitting there and you're kind of thinking, well, hmm, we've been fighting this fight. We've been you name the advocacy efforts and moves and campaigns. And you mentioned that a little bit in the intro. We've done it all. I mean, we have done it all. And there was just this moment where you're sitting there and you're like, this is an opportunity to do something different. The kids are at home with their parents. There is a disconnect 
that they have from the district. The district doesn't have their phone number. The teachers union in the district are still trying to negotiate how many hours are the teachers going to work or what's going to happen. There's just a lot of that ongoing sort of tension. And I feel like being in a sunken place is like just being exacerbated in that moment. And so we're just kind of like, what if we just use this as an opportunity to just build the thing that we've been fighting for, for half a decade? So instead of trying to use our resources to turn our families back into the system, a system that is like not equipped, right, in this moment, has already struggled and now struggling even more. Why would we start banging? Are we going to do bang on the doors louder? Let's use this as an opportunity to build the thing that we've always wanted to see and wanted them to build. And that really is what the the roots of um, of the hub really came from. It was about integrating both the academic needs and aspirations of families with the socioeconomic ones. We really wanted to build a hub that really acknowledged the fact that the sustainability of a family and the sustainability of a family that leads to a child being great in education has to consider both the academic piece and the economic needs and, and, and even challenges that our families face. With the Oakland Reach, our, our team has strong relationships with their families, and we still lose families to life. I can't imagine how many families have left Oakland since the pandemic, just based on jobs and income and, and things of that nature. So what was great about that is that when we mapped out the vision, being able to have either our current funders or new funders come to the table and say, we believe <clears throat> in what you're trying to do. We get it. We understand it. You know, we've been funding to try to help move and shift systems that are not shifting and moving. So here you go, right? Figure it out. We are in an unprecedented times. Nobody's got the answer. Nobody's coming to save anybody. If you got a game plan, then roll with it. And that's really, that's really what happened. It was hard, hard work to, to launch it, but it was also one of the most creative and innovative and most wonderful times of, of Oakland Reach because just imagine being able to be free to build the thing you need to build. You're not fussing and yelling and, and always trying to push people to do a thing that they'll listen to you, but then you can tell by what happens a week later, a month later, a year later, that they have no intention to prioritize your demands and needs. So when the hub was a thing we can own. A hub is a thing that we could do for our communities that was uninterrupted by politics and tension and other people's interests. It was just like solely and just singularly focused on kids being able to read and kids being on track to go to college. That was it. And it was like, can you imagine what you build and what you create when you have no distractions from folks' agendas who may have their hands all up in education? Think that they're speaking on behalf of low-income families who always are saying like, oh, the black and brown kids or whatever, but never do a freaking thing. They never do a thing to make things better. To have those people out of your way because they're scrambling somewhere in some corner, right? They don't know what to do. And just being able to build and build something great, like it was hard and being in this, in this virus is hard, but I will tell you, it has forced some exposure on education that has been long overdue. I mean, the veil has been pulled back. We were at the most sunken place before the virus. And now we are talking about and pushing on innovations. And, and now we're talking about how do we center education around family and not the opposite way around. Families, especially low-income families, like, 
whatever you're saying, just drop your kid off because I'm going to save your kid. I can go on and on about that, Shelly, but that's where it came from. We launched the hub on June 29th. That was the first day of the hub. We launched it with 200 students. The students were K through eight. It was completely virtual, completely virtual. We had our K through two students were in our hub called the Literacy Liberation Center. So that was going to be focused on literacy. Our third through eighth graders, we were in a partnership with this organization called, now it's called Cadence Learning. They were running at the time. They were just launching and coming off the ground with something called the National Summer School Initiative, NSSI. And again, it was just sort of like kismet because they were trying to do stuff for third through eighth graders. And we were running the K through eight. And so it was just a perfect way to, to, to collaborate. They, run an, they ran an amazing program for our families. We hired 14 teachers. All of our team, which were community organizers, pivoted to become family liaisons. So they pivoted to become family liaisons, which is just a little bit more direct, you know, more sort of entrenched and integrated with the families. And then we made sure every kid had a laptop and had a computer. We made sure every household that didn't have internet access got a hotspot. Every family that successfully completed the hub got a stipend at the end of that. And we had amazing results at the end of the of phase one of the hub, right? We 60% of our K through two students went up two or more reading levels on the district-wide assessment. We assessed them before summer school and then we assessed them after. And then 60% went up three or more reading levels because that Literacy for All campaign, where we were fighting, pushing the system, bringing folks together to focus on the science of reading, we just took all of that and incorporated that into the hub and kids started reading. And I think that that is one of the things that first attracted me to what you were doing is that you had taken what was not working and you made it work. And you had been very vocal about public schools have been failing to educate black and brown families long before COVID-19. And so you just stepped in and did it yourself. And the results have been amazing. Yeah, we stepped in and did it ourselves. And I think it's an important national conversation because I think in this country, we can be about like, pull yourself up from the bootstraps. But what if you don't have bootstraps? Or what if those bootstraps are, are about to fall apart? But we were self-determined. We did take our kids' educations in our own hands. We did build the thing that we wanted to see. And that is open, right? In many ways, again, when I think about the Black Panther movement, a lot of what they did was around, we are going to build our own. We are going to build our own because the system in which we were born into is not doing that for us. That's a lot of the spirit of, of what we built. And like you said, like said, the results have been amazing. And now we've been running the hub for a year. Wonderful thing that happened towards the end of last year is we were in the process of figuring out, well, what is our advocacy agenda going to be around making sure that the hub can expand and that the school system actually starts adopting and replicating what is actually working for our communities. And I just want to note, when the fall hit, the school district folks were definitely interested in our hub. They were interested in our family liaison role, like really, really interested in it and wanted to think about how they could replicate that. But we just were not in like deep collaboration at that time. They were trying to get their fall stuff off the ground. We were trying to get our fall stuff off the ground. So it was really through this grant opportunity that we had through the New Teacher Project and, and SERPI, the Center for Reinventing Public Education, where we able to kind of sit at the table and say, what would it look like for us to come together and expand this hub um, within the Oakland Unified School District? But at the time that this happened or was 
was a right before it happened, we were thinking about, well, what is our advocacy agenda? How are we going to push the system on this? So it was really a blessing, to be honest with you, to have the opportunity to shift the way advocacy was happening to really just move into a really sort of equitable partnership with the district. And so as we speak right now, so we we were awarded almost it was like 900,000 worth of funding. This was for Oakland. And this was all focused on like, how does the districts leverage and expand hubs to create durable change within the system? And it was perfect for Oakland because we had already built the hub. They were setting up in-person hubs, but we had built this virtual hub that we had now been running for several months that was getting local and national attention. So it was just perfect. And it was perfect because by building this on the outside, when it was time to move the hub, some pieces of the hub to replicate on the inside, because we still run our external hub, we could move faster. Shelly, we could move faster. We were awarded the funding December 18th. I will never forget getting the phone call. Then everybody went on Christmas break. So we come back, what, around January 4th or 5th. And the month of January was a lot of like admin stuff and trying to kind of figure out ways of working and and getting everybody on the same page because you got a big school district and then you got us and there's like three or four people from my team and three or four people from their team. But right now on April the 21st, in partnership with our school district, we have we have hired 30 additional staff. And that's a combination of family liaisons. We're calling them kind of equity family leaders. They had to get a different name on the on the on the district side. And then literacy tutors, all to expand our hub with this really, really strong focus on literacy. So this really strong focus on literacy and incorporating what we did to get our kids reading and going up grade levels, we're literally just replicating that. And we're actually guiding the district. Now, the district is already committed. They had already committed to move into the science of reading. But I think what people need to understand is that the central office committing to that and then it trickling down to the kids, that is not an easy journey. To one, have it trickle down to one school, but then to have it be a system-wide shift you know, the principal could want to do it and the, and the teacher in the classroom does something else. And I think that's why we did so much work with our parents, because we wanted to teach before COVID hit, Shelly, we were and we were running Literacy for All campaign. One of the most impactful things we did was educate our families on the science of reading, because what we wanted to tell our families is like, this is what your kids, this is what should be happening in your child's classroom. And tomorrow or the next day, you can walk in that classroom and see and ask questions about how literacy instruction is actually happening. And if these things are not happening, they are not setting your child up to be able to read. Do you get what I'm saying? And so, and we were doing that work with our families because we knew that not only did some of it had to be grass tops, a ton of it needed to be grassroots. We needed more families, more educated, more informed on how reading happen, how literacy happens best. And between those two things, we could really shift the system. So like I said, we have, we're piloting the hub within six schools in Oakland Unified School District right now. We've hired 30 additional folks, help them hire 30 additional folks. I want to be clear, these folks are being hired to serve the district. They are not Oakland Reach employees, but our family liaisons and our folks are partnering and coaching and being in community of practice with them. And this is how it's supposed to work. And we hired these people in like two months. 
this can happen. This is a real thing, right? This can really happen. When people say things take time, BS, right? Like you want to be thoughtful, you want to be rigorous, but don't try to trick us into thinking that things take time. No. (laughs) And basically, Shelly, we don't have any time. We've been out of time. So I think it's taking the time that it's needed and everybody's got to put some fire under their butts around this stuff because our babies are behind less than 30%, less than 30% of black and brown kids are on gray level and less than 50% of actually all kids in Oakland are reading on gray level. And that includes more privileged families. So this reading crisis is really obviously a citywide issue. It crosses socioeconomic status in many ways, even though privileged families have more resources to sort of get more private tutoring and things of that nature. But they're not happy with a lot of the ways that the literacy instruction is happening, even at their school. So this is also an opportunity to just build coalition and bring people together to say, we just all want our kids to learn. And then when you think on top of the fact that like over 25% of our families have kids with IEPs, and, and how are those students in our community being served? So that's what we are. So those family liaisons and literacy tutors are going through orientation right now as we speak. Our school year is in the process of we're, we're closing out our school year. We have about a little over a month before our school year ends. But we are planning for a pretty robust summer. I think, Shelly, when we last spoke, we were in the process of surveying our families. We wanted to understand how they were feeling about school reopening. And, and whether or not they were going to be bringing their families. We want to understand how they were feeling and their needs around vaccinations, technology, and summer school. And so we got some pretty telling results from them. We listen to our families and then we build the solutions. I say that all the time, but that is true. I can sleep at night when I know that like, and we, our capacity and resources are being used correctly when we move in the ways that our families need. We always make sure that we are exposing our families to new experiences and opportunities. Like nobody knows everything that they need to know to get to where they want to get to, but we make sure that it's it's built on the foundation of listening to them. And so a three-fourths of our family said they wanted summer learning, that they wanted the summer school. And so we were like, okay. And 85% of those families said that they wanted to have some sort of outdoor and out, outside activities as part of that programming. So We're excited about that. We get a chance to pilot this summer running a virtual hub for the academic portion of the day, but then building out a outdoor really cool experience for not just our kids, but our families. You know, what if our, you know, having our families do boot camps and and get out there? We've been talking about field days and as people are trying to get back connected to their community, how does the hub evolve to, you know, to continue to do that? And we're going to have a huge literacy focus this summer again, um, as well as math. Our kids actually do worse in math than they do in literacy. <laughs> Woo! It's, it's <laughs> overwhelming, honestly, to think <laughs> when you know that they do worse in math than they do literacy and our literacy rates are so low. It's abysmal, uh, honestly, in so many ways. You've got such a great model And I know that people have come from all over the country and even the world to look at what you've built and how they can replicate that. And Mm -hmm. I'd love to know some of the lessons that you've learned, like on the engaging the parents and the specific actions. One of the phrases that you use that I really like is don't just do something, do this. You have some really specific things that work. Yes, I would say 
you know, when I, when we talk about how we engage and move families to action, I think we have to really rethink the ways that we bring families in to fight for better. Part of it is like, if you give folks the best, they'll start expecting the best. Many of our families are fighting for uh, a utopia that they've never actually experienced in their lifetime. And they are not experiencing with their own children. That's a hard kind of thing. And, and I think it's steeped in culture and race in this country. But the hub is about privilege. The hub was about giving our families that porterhouse steak, I call it. Um, giving, dreaming big and creating the utopia that we want. And then that's what we'll fight for. Let's just stop fighting for things that we've never actually been able to get our hands on. I think that's huge because I feel like oftentimes the way we do advocacy, we we burden already burdened families. You know what I'm saying? To, to, to not get to not get that much. And, and yes, to your earlier point, the focus is do this. We have so much information, Shelly, that tells us our systems are not innovating. They are not creating the models and the pathways to put our babies on college. When do we stop and really, was it Maya Angelou who says, when people show you who they are, believe them? That's like real talk, which is like, yes, we need to partner with you, but I'm going to stop believing that you are going to create what I need to have happen for my children. What we want to do, and that's why we need resources and funding to do those things, is that we're going to build the solutions that we know we need. And then we come to you and say, you do this, you replicate this. So that's why this hub expansion and partnership with the district has been able to happen so quickly is because we already had a model that we were running outside of the system. I can't imagine that we would be getting that those kind of headwinds had we been trying to build from scratch within the system. So I think that's huge. And I think our families feel invigorated around the fight because they're like, okay, there's a balance here. Most of the time, I'm just getting the support to make sure my child can read and get on track to college. And then when folks get in the way of that, and when barriers are brought up or when there's political tensions, then we'll deal with that when that comes in. Advocacy needs to be the bodyguard. Advocacy needs to be the understudy. But most of the time, we need to be focused on what is the world that we want to build? Because I will tell you that with the rescue, the American Rescue Plan money coming in, and, I, and I've been having conversations with folks about this around the country, what are parent advocacy groups on the ground going to do? What are folks who have the, the, the closest connection and contact with the folks who have been least served what is the strongest and hardest weapon that advocacy weapon that we can use at this time? To me, it's stuff like the hub. You're not just telling these folks, now that you're getting all this money, you need to make sure these kids can read. Now that you're getting all this money, and it's just like everybody is chattering and coming, but who's going to throw the infrastructure and solutions in their face to say, you do this. You're getting these hundreds of millions of dollars. I don't even need you to think about it. Because I, I will say this, that most districts, many, many districts, and, and ours has been that in, in, in so many ways for so long, they operate with a scarcity mindset. It has been just an absolute hustle for bodies in Oakland. And there has been little to no talk about quality. Do you just think that because somebody, a district just gets hundreds of millions of dollars that they can change that mindset to all of a sudden create results? So I, I want to put that out there very clearly that don't expect miracles to happen just because money comes in. If there is no infrastructure, if there is no game plan, but I will tell you what is amazing about that money coming in right now is that 
it is going to be putting everybody on alert. These folks that said that there was not enough money for this and not enough resources for that, they have no more excuses. Now you got to actually put stuff into place. So I'm going to be honest with you, that American Rescue Plan money is the best thing to shake up this system right now. But if we want to really shake it up and make sure our babies get what they need, we need models like the hub that our families can bring forth to say, you're getting all this money. This is what you need to replicate. This is what you need to do. I think without it, we should not expect a whole lot in the next five years. I think that there's a huge danger of all of this money. And I did a podcast not too long ago with Peter Tang, who was really sharing the research behind what works. And if school systems and districts and state fail to produce results after this money, then there's going to be an accounting of why we failed. And it's not going to be pretty. And I really feel like the failure to do things, like you said, we've always said, if we just had the money, we could do this. We've got the money now. And I agree, it is time to shake it up and do something different. But there is a reckoning coming if people don't use it for the results that are needed. It's a reckoning coming. I want to really note that like we have spoken We have attended, we have participated in over 100 board meetings. I can count maybe less than five on my hand where either our board, our folks are actually talking about how our kids are going to be learning. How are we going to make our schools better? And then you have your typical caravan of people who just like, they live for the board meeting. Like this is their life. They consider themselves like the community people. And then they kick up a bunch of dust and little of that has anything to do with quality. And so- These mindset shifts are not easy to make. And you're going to see folks throwing stuff up against the wall. Won't we do this? Why don't we do that? I believe that we always should have been focusing on quality. It does not take much money at all to get kids to read. It takes research, focus, will, and people coming together and saying, we're going to do what's right by kids. We did it. In a very short period of time. In a very short amount of time in five weeks. And our kids are still progressing and still growing. And we did that all virtually. And so, yes, they are definitely challenges with remote learning. And we keep addressing that with our families as they come up. And what I was saying is just like everybody's feeling the quarantine fog and itching and all of that stuff of not being connected to their communities or or just getting outside more and all of that. And so we brought in mental health experts, you know, through our Family Sustainability Center, which is where our Family Sustainability Center in the hub, which I know I've spoken a little about has really been the place of where we're doing all of the like workshops and learnings and leadership development for our family. And so that is a place where we bring in the mental health experts and and really have them listen to families. And then it gives us a chance to listen to what are the next pieces of, what are the next solutions that we need to put into place? What are the deeper solutions around mental health supports that we need to put into place? Because we still have a lot of families who are saying that they want to stay home, that they want to keep their kids at home. And so a lot of what I've been also communicating is that there's a school reopening conversation happening, but that conversation has multiple sides to it. So we have to be careful about not running with just one narrative on school reopening, which is kids going back into the classroom. And partly when people say that, we should be talking about what are they going back to? These classrooms were not that great to begin with. So we understand the need for people, for the kids to connect and socialize and do all of that. 
let's not let that supersede the fact that school is also supposed to be an environment of learning and growth for a kid's future. It was for me. It probably was for you. Right. And if it's not that place, we can't just get so what you could, I call it just like extreme of like, we just got to get these kids back in school. And what we're saying at the open reach and with the hub is like, whoa, 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 hold on a second. We do not want to go back to normal. We do not want the continuity of learning. And what are you sending our babies back to? And listen to families. There are many families that want to stay at home. So we need models like the hub to continue to expand and grow to meet the needs of those families. And not just about staying at home, but about actually having access to a quality education that's going to teach our kids to read. The hub is not about whether or not it happens in person or virtual. It can happen anyway. What it's about is having a model that is centered around the real, real needs and aspirations of families and not the other way around. And and I really agree with the idea of asking the people who it affects, the people doing the work, people living this experience are the ones that you need to be consulting with. Our teachers in classrooms know what's going on, our families who are experiencing it, our kids who are experiencing this. They are the ones that it needs to be designed for. Yeah. And I think people, the thing, Shelly, is people say it, oh, people are good at talking, but you often do not see that in action. You know, the voices of low-income families truly, truly are not considered in the same ways as privileged families. And I think a huge thing, too, with privileged families is that they do have the opportunity to say, hey, I'm going to opt out of this. I'm going to opt out of this system if it doesn't work for me, and then I'll come back later when it does. And like I was telling folks, I'm not mad at that, but our families need to have the ability to do the same thing. And then that's when you start seeing the systems change. Agreed. The work of Oakland Reach has been featured nationally and internationally, which is incredibly impressive for an organization that hasn't really been uh, around a terribly long period of time. You hosted a hub visiting day in July for others to come and learn about how to replicate this work in their communities. For those seeking to replicate the kind of work that you're doing, what would be your advice? I'm glad you asked that question because I have probably had more than two dozen conversations with, like I said, organizations and cities. What I really think that's going to be needed for replication, if we're serious about it, is, and, and, and we're starting to try to have these conversations, is that we need an infrastructure that is able to help cities on the ground work and build this. You can't just have a 45-minute conversation with me and then replicate what we've done, right? And we've even codified this thing. Like we've had this, we have this great one-pager that really codifies like the four, five core elements of what makes the, the hub work. And I believe that you can take those elements and place them anywhere. But the way you do it in Birmingham, Alabama is going to look very different than you do it in Oakland, than you do it in D.C., Florida, whatnot. And so I believe that there needs to be an investment and in an infrastructure that allows for us to partner with districts and or that that's the beauty of the hub. And what we've done in Oakland is that we've shown that we have the fidelity to actually show how you do it within the system, as well as how the community-based organizations, the the organizations closest to the families can be at the table in a different kind of way. Because one of the things I said recently is like, the way that the systems bring in community is like a plucking method. They pluck people 
from different places so that then they can show that like, oh, we have all of these diverse stakeholders. But that doesn't build the kind of collective power that you need pushing into the system. The Oakland Reach is an organization of collective power, of parent power. We're not being plucked, right? And, and pulled apart. And there's times that we sit at different tables, but we are always one drum and one voice um, on that. And so I believe that my advice is tell your, you know, tell your local districts and communities like we need the hub. We need the hub because that money is coming in. And the question is, is what are these districts going to do and how do folks on the ground who really want to make systems change the what is the strongest weapon? What is the strongest advocacy tool and weapon that they can have? to make a dent into how the, these systems use this money. And Shelly, I will keep you posted too, obviously. You got to bring me back later on, especially yeah. maybe after the summer when we or are during the summer, we will have another hub visiting day. But what we're really thinking about is what does a national infrastructure look like? And I think the last part I'll add is that we don't have much time. <laughs> we do not have much time. We, we are in a very short window to start to, to lay the foundation that then allows us a little bit of breathing room to build on that. But when you have such these diverging narratives that have so many different needs of different folks and trying to make sure that the voices of low-income families and what they need and want are heard in this, with this just this mad anxiety and rush to just put kids back in school, I mean, you're trying to sift through the muck and make sure that the solutions that are put into place are serving all the communities they need to serve. So if we don't get that narrative, and that's why podcasts like these are really important, if we don't get these narratives out more, you know, everybody will get shuffled back into one sort of brick and mortar type of environment and we'll be back to where we started. And that's just not acceptable. And, and, and guess what? Our families are not going to do it. They are not going to do it. They are more activated and engaged than they've ever been. They've had the port of house state. They've cut into it. So they are not trying to go back to beef tips. Not the beef tips are not bad, are bad, but you get the difference. I right? was thinking the hamburger. <laughs> hamburger, right. I've been thinking about what is a good like contrast to the porterhouse steak. You know, I love hamburgers too. I just love beef. That's coming from a family from the South. <laughs> That's right. Southerners <laughs> are all about what can we eat. And so we like to put things on the grill. But, you know, I do think this, is a crossroads that we are at as educators and as a nation and what direction we go in is going to largely determine the results of where is public education in general going and you know you have been in an environment where charter schools were needed and have been successful and I think that the more need there is the more we're going to innovate and, and find solutions. I agree. And that's what we need. We're here for it. Oakland is here for it. Okay. Um, Oakland Reach is here for it. You know, I, I love the idea of we, you've already invented this wheel. And so why reinvent it? We can really base a lot uh, on what you've already done and been successful with, which is one of the reasons I wanted you to speak on our podcast. Do you have any thoughts? Um, being proactive in this work or anything else that you'd like to share before you go? Like I said, I think the biggest thing on our minds as a country right now, and I think you've, you know, you've articulated it well, 
to Shelly is like a lot of money's coming in. It could make a lasting positive impact on our school systems and our kids and, and what they can do. And if we do the right thing, if we do the right thing, I'm not sure of everyone in your audience, but whether you're from a local community group or a systems person or just a concerned citizen, we need to have all eyes and ears and energy on these resources and funding and, and how it can set us on a totally new and needed pathway to like education liberation. Agreed. Lakeisha, thank you so much for being with us today. I am so going to take you up on that and have you back and hear about the great things that you are continuing to do for families and children. And I know that the nation and even uh, countries around the world are watching what you're doing. So I appreciate so much you sharing it with us today. Thank you, Shelley, for having me. Thank you. Join us again next week for the next episode of the Alabama Literacy Network podcast.